The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O merciful Lord, grant to your faithful people pardon and peace, that we may be cleansed from all our sins and serve you with a quiet mind. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. A reading from the book of Amos. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion, and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations, to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Kalna and see, and from there go to Hamath the Great, and then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms, or is their territory greater than your territory? O you who put far away the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence. Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall, who sing idol songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music, who drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile, and the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The word of the Lord. A reading from the book of 1 Peter. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from such the, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and your hope are in God. Having purified your soul by obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed but of the imperishable through the living, abiding word of God. For all flesh, is all, all flesh is like grass, and all and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, all deceit, 
and hypocrisy and envy and slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The word of the Lord. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Luke. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted scrumptiously every day. And at his gate there was a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried, and in Hades, being tormented, He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your life you received good things and Lazarus manner bad where am I? And Lazarus, in like manner, bad things. But now he is comf- comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that they may warn them, he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Lord Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your church, the time we can worship and receive from you in so many ways. And we thank you for uh, the great gift of your word and ask that you open our hearts and minds to receive, um, that you uh, proclaim to us what you have for us today. In your name, amen. You can be seated. So perhaps many of you at this point have heard of the children's show Bluey, or maybe if you're like me and you're honest, you've got a lot more experience with it than that. I believe at this point that I've seen every episode, well, most more than once, many more than twice. Um, In my credit, they're only six-minute episodes. It's not that much in comparison, but it's a lot. Um, So Bluey is this uh, animated uh, show about a family of blue healers. It's dogs. It's a world of dogs. This family, though, happens to be in Australia. So not only are they dogs, they're Australian-accented dogs, which makes it so much more delightful uh, in those ways. So it's a mom and a dad and two young sisters. The sisters are Bluey and Bingo. And this is one of those kids' shows. It's actually pretty fun for parents. I, there's a reason I end up watching them. Um, you know, it has all the kids' silly moments, but it does a good layer of extra little adult winks and nods, and even just big ideas that are fun to see work out in there. Um, But there's a lot of that silly stuff, and it's primarily through the two sisters who have um, just kind of raging imaginations. They can come up with anything. And then somehow, their parents 
are like almost magically able to understand and participate in those imaginary games with like no context. It's, it's a lot. And I know, parents, if you're out there and you're feeling bluey things with me, remember, it's fiction, it's a cartoon. We aren't expected to be as good as they are at these things. It's okay if we're not. Um, in Bluey, though, in the, there's an episode here in the new third season. Um, see, I'm, like, hooked. I know all these details. Uh, but the two sisters at the start of this episode, they've been told to pick up after themselves. And like a lot of kids their age, they're complaining about that, and they ask their dad, why do we need to pick up? But he's busy, and like many parents, you can tell he's been asked too many questions like that already today, and his response is just, because I said so. So they say, but why do we need to do what you say? And I really resonate with his response. He says because I'm bigger than you. <laughs> and at that point, Bluey and Bingo, they get this surprisingly insult- insightful idea, and they introduce da- their dad to Tina. That's their newest imaginary friend who is very large. And so the, most of the jokes of the episode come as Tina, who's now the biggest, gets to make all the rules and make the parents do what the kids want. And then a really fun part is when the parents attack Tina and drag her out of the house, uh, and she's never there, of course. It's always imaginary, so it's very fun and very amusing time. But as this is happening, the parents are talking about how Tina stinks, and there's flies following her around because she never takes baths, and how they find her teeth falling out because she never brushes her teeth. And the girls start to wonder, what's going on with that? And so the parents finally have that moment where they get to say, you know... We don't always give you the best answers when we're busy and in a rush and things, but there really are good reasons why we're asking you to do things like brush your teeth, take baths, clean up after yourselves. This is for your good. So today we're continuing our our fall study of 1 Peter together. If you missed the first sermon last week, I do recommend find it. It's on our website or on YouTube. It's helpful to catch up with where we are. I hope it's helpful in other ways for you as well. But today we're going to be finishing off chapter 1, which was began last week. In the beginning of this chapter, um, Peter was focusing especially on really big foundational ideas for us. Primarily, he was really thinking about the amazing, life-changing hope that we have because of all that God has done, and especially because of what he will yet do for us. In this part of the chapter now, Peter moves on from that big, ex, uh, like big examination, exploration of what really was the gospel in our faith, and he's moving now to explore Uh, in detail, what is our response to this? How do we live with this being true? But rather than like just give out a list of do's and don'ts, Peter actually is going to spend a lot of time in this section explaining not just what we're going to do now, but he especially explains why it is we do these things. There's meant to be no confusion here. There's no need for an imaginary Tina to come in and kind of get things in line here. Peter is making sure to take time that we will realize... um, why we live the way we do now, that we live the way we do now because of what God has done, because of what he'll yet do, because of who we are now in him. So we've been born again into God's family with God as Father. We've been saved by the life and death of Jesus. And all of this is meant to very practically help us to know what this new life we have looks like. But also, I think sometimes when we approach these types of exhortations around behavior and sins, we can feel maybe a bit intimidated by them. We might think about how hard it actually can be or remember the ways we don't live up to these standards. And a big part of the why in this section is actually meant to help us relieve some of those fears and feelings of guilt. And that is because we remember what Christ has already done on our behalf. And so it's actually not about our perfection here. God is offering us a vision for the life that we can grow into even after we make mistakes. 
So right away, as we start looking at our passage, um, we're going to see a very strong connection with Peter's main point um, from earlier in the chapter. Peter says, we should set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought when Jesus Christ returns. Again, earlier in this chapter, Peter explained that living hope that we have. He said our hope is our promised inheritance. That's good. It will not decay or die. It's kept safe by God. Our hope is our future salvation, when we will live forever with God and we'll even look upon him face to face. This is our great hope, and it's certain and secure. We live in expectation for it happening, and we know it will happen. And that hope is so vital and key to everything that Peter's going to point us there again at this point. We should put all of our hope, all our expectations for the future on this great grace and salvation that Christ will bring us. And as Peter said earlier, we do that so that we can always rejoice. We will always have joy in our God. But here at the start of this passage, Peter's also being very realistic about this. He doesn't think that this is necessarily easy or second nature for us. So he actually challenges us to fully engage ourselves to this, to fully set our minds to this hope. He says we should prepare our minds. He doesn't mean here like a one-and-done preparation, like, all right, I have prepared my mind, I'm done, I can move on. He means it's an ongoing preparation. Keep preparing your mind. Stay prepared. He's saying don't get sloppy and let down your guard. Always be ready. And he's saying be sober-minded as well. Sober-minded is about being disciplined, having self-control. So Peter is saying Keep preparing yourself. Be disciplined so that you can set your hope fully on the salvation that Christ will bring when he comes. To me, this is speaking especially to that pretty regular fight we will find in our lives, even with ourselves. You know, when the world around us is saying there is no hope, when everything inside of us says just give up, we still fight to hold on to the hope that we have. And even when things are good, we prepare for this fight. We, we try to point ourselves again and again, day after day, to our ultimate hope that we have in Jesus Christ. I actually think we do something a lot like what Peter's talking about for all sorts of things in our lives already. If you've ever tried to get that dream job, you have to be disciplined, make space for study, learn new habits and skills. If you're ever planning to run a marathon, I don't know why you would, but some of you do, um, I know you work to build endurance through running and other like lifting and things. You have to eat healthily. You really need to work on your mental game because at some point it's going to hurt on that marathon and you have to be able to push through all of that. Or my wife reminded me as I was practicing with her about just pregnancy. Moms have to give up many things and add many things for the sake of the health of their baby to get through that point when baby fully arrives. So we already really know a lot about being disciplined for an important goal. And Peter's telling us right away here in this passage that our right living as Christians, that holding on to hope as Christians, it doesn't come by accident. It takes preparation and discipline. He doesn't give specific examples here, though, of what that discipline might look like. But we can think about disciplines like reading Scripture daily, memorizing Scripture, fasting, giving. Really, anything that helps point us to God and makes us practice that self-control is good. But I think especially we should be turning to prayer all the time, our discipline of prayer. Prayer when we wake, when we go to sleep. Prayer when we eat, when we're driving, when we're at work. Um, Especially prayer when we're struggling. When we feel overwhelmed, when we grieve. Yes, we go to God for help to fix whatever this is, to help for healing. 
but also it's prayer about remembering Christ and what he has done. It's prayer to turn our eyes to him, to focus on him, and to know his grace and his peace in our lives. He's always at work. We're praying to see what he's doing and rest in that. Uh, Prayer like this is a real fight, but God is very faithful to meet us and to bring us through. And with God's help in your discipline in this, um, you will come to points where you don't fight the same way for prayer all the time. As we're moving on in the passage here, we come to one of Peter's overall whys for the passage. Why do we live like this? Why do we obey? And it's because we are born again and we have God as our Father. We're actually really going to see that going throughout the passage. But in the next few verses, we see Peter calling us obedient children, saying we're calling on God as Father. That's that born-again language here. And the point for Peter is, well, God is our Father. We are his children, and so we should be like him. First for this, Peter says, well, we can't go back to our old ways of life. Don't be conformed to the passions of your former way of thinking or of living. I like how N.T. Wright translates that. He says, don't be squashed into the shape of those old passions. The old way we lived before we knew Christ, it was confining, constricting. We were being smashed into different shapes by our passions. Now, it's not that passion is inherently bad, The idea here is that these passions ruled us. They dominated our attentions. They led us away from God and into sin, to what we weren't meant to be. But that's what we once knew. Now, being born again, um, we're new children of God. We're free of their control, and we're free to be like our Father. So even as Peter says, we can be holy as our Father is holy. Maybe that doesn't sound the most exciting to you. Or maybe it actually sounds kind of overwhelming. We're supposed to be holy like God is holy, but he's like really, really holy. That's not a little request. Or maybe if you're being honest, you're thinking, you know, we throw that word around a lot, holy, but what does that really mean? What does it mean for me to live and be holy like God is holy? I think that's a really great question for us. And right In this part of the passage, we see some contrast that helps explain this to us a bit. Obviously, we've seen we aren't supposed to be dominated by our passions and led into sin. We should be holy. Holiness is contrasted with this. It's the opposite of that domination to sin and passion. But much more than just that, generally speaking, when we talk about holiness, we're talking about the idea of being set apart. When we're called to be holy, we're called to be set apart for God, set apart from our old ways, set apart from the way the world does things from sin so that we live for God and we live more and more like God. And here, this call to holiness, it's meant as a very universal call. It's not that just some of us are called to be holy. It's not that we're only holy in some places in our lives, like when we're at church or when we're praying. We're actually called to be set apart for God's service to be holy in all of our lives. It's a little hard here that Peter doesn't more deeply describe what holiness looks like to us. He's really relying on a deeper understanding of God and the scriptures he expects us to have. It's helpful to know as you read the Bible, the Bible really wants you to read the Bible a lot, to really bring it all in, to be able to deal with these moments you come to. But even in this moment, we can think a little bit more then. Well, what does holiness look like? What are we thinking about when we think about God? Well, being set apart for God's service, it's, again, it's avoiding sin, but it's a lot more than just avoiding sin. It's living according to God's design. It's imitating God in what we do, so we can think about imitating his love and care, his creativity, his goodness, and his justice. We can be holy in all the things we do, from changing diapers to filing expense reports. 
our call is, as God's children, to imitate that holiness of his in all of our lives. And then Peter continues on here to remind us that, yes, God is our Father, but also God is our judge. He's the judge of the whole world. This isn't an image of judges as we think. It's not an image of God in like black robes on a high desk with lawyers and a jury, things like that. This is an image of God as king of all things. And he's reigning from his throne and judging from his throne. He judges all things according to his goodness and his holiness. And Peter says, as we remember that, well, then we should live with fear. Now, that's not fear like be afraid. You know, watch every step. Something's going to jump out and get you. It's not fear like God could turn on you at any moment. That's not biblical fear. What Peter's talking about here is reverence. We live with reverence for God. Yes, God is our Father, but we remember too, He is King. So how do we live in such a way that displays both His love, but also His Lordship of our lives in the world? But I know that word fear, getting into this part of the conversation, that starts to stir things up in us because we think about God as judge and we do think, what about my failures and my sins? God is the righteous judge. Am I good enough? But Peter reminds us from here on, it's not about us like that. It's not about our mistakes or our failings because we never earned the love of God. We didn't have to work to become his children. We still can't earn God's love and forgiveness. Instead, God ransomed us from our sins. He paid the price to buy us out of our old ways, out of sin and death. And the price wasn't paid simply in silver or gold as if it could be overpaid or used up in some way. The price was paid with the most precious, priceless blood of Jesus. Because Christ died on our behalf and for our sins, our price has been paid. Our sins are dealt with. And that doesn't mean then watch out lest you sin too much. Instead, we need to think first, but God already paid that infinite price for you. He's not just going to throw you aside. God ransomed us from sin. That's a reminder that he will keep working in our lives. He'll keep loving. He'll keep forgiving. That does, though, of course, mean for us we can't keep running to sin. Christ already gave too much for us to take that sacrifice lightly. But it does also mean that we can't stumble our way out of the love of God. So we can always have faith and hope in God, no matter our failings, because it's always about his victory. It's about his grace and love for us. We continue on to verse 22 here. Um, Peter is still holding on to the centrality of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And now he begins to challenge us with that, about how we're going to love each other. He starts this part of the conversation with kind of an oblique phrase. I struggled with this line here a lot this week trying to figure it out. He says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Now, when Peter says truth here, he doesn't mean just like truth generally or like math equations, things like that. He means the most important truth, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And obedience to that truth includes our acceptance of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf. It includes seeking Jesus' forgiveness, our repentance. Obedience to the truth of the gospel is about turning ourselves over to the gospel and the God of the gospel. And when we do that, we come and find our souls have been purified by him, and we can stand before God. We've been cleansed from our sins. We are pure before him. So the point here. Peter is saying, Christ has saved us, we can stand before God, and that all results now in a sincere brotherly love. It's a family love. We can love each other like we are all siblings, brothers and sisters. 
But it's actually not just that we now have love for each other. Peter, God through Peter here, is going to command us then, you love each other, now love each other even more. Love each other earnestly from a pure heart. That's have genuine, sincere love for the whole church. And that love coming from a pure heart, a heart without deceit, without hypocrisy. And then Peter's continuing here, and he's kind of starting to sound a little bit like a broken record as he goes on, because he says that we love each other because we've been born again through God's living and abiding word, which is the gospel that was preached to us. So it's again, we love because we're saved by Jesus Christ. It's starting to get repetitive. It's all about being saved by Jesus Christ, but that's good. There are no surprises here. We're saved by Christ. That is the center for how we live, how we love, and all that's going on here. Peter does give more content here, though, to what this love looks like. Aside from just saying love each other, he wants to help us to figure this out. And he has here a short list of sins, bad behaviors that we have to put away. And we see that these are very relationship-oriented. We come to lists of sins. You might expect some very, very bad-sounding vices and problems, bigger ones than these. But these are the kinds of sins and wrong behaviors. These are the things that will destroy communities. So we have to put them away. The imagery there is of taking off and discarding our old clothes. So we take off and we throw away malice. Malice is especially ill will toward others. You know, we can't want the worst. We can't want harm or problems for others in the church. We also must put away our deceit and hypocrisy. That obviously does include lying, but it also includes false motives and insincerity. We can't continue in what seems like an outward love when it's not true for what's inside as well. And we can't envy what our brothers and sisters have, their gifts or talents or resources, and we must not slander them before others. Now, of course, Peter here is focusing on the relationships within the church. He's talking to people who are beginning to suffer for their faith, and they need each other. They need each other's love to make it through. We need each other, each other's love and help to make it through in our lives. But Peter's limited focus here on loving within the church, that doesn't mean that like, we can reserve these sins or these actions for people outside the church. We even know Jesus calls us to love even our enemies. So these things are just not loving. They can't continue in us in any way. C.S. Lewis, in his um, book, The Screwtape Letters, it's probably one of my favorites, um, he presents there a fictional correspondence between two demons. And I'm just going to say, if you haven't read The Screwtape Letters, go do so later, not right now. Um, But then if you have read it, read it again. It's very good and helpful. But anyway, these two demons, one of them is Screwtape, and he's the the higher up in this demonic kind of an organization that they have. Um, And then one is his nephew, Wormwood, who's this new low-level tempter. And Wormwood has been assigned to this young man, and he's supposed to bring about this man's damnation. But actually, right in the second chapter, the second letter, we find out that the man has already become a Christian. But the demons are going to plan on proceeding. They still want to work to try to destroy him. And right in that second chapter, um, Screwtape's advice to Wormwood is to deal with how that man views the church. Don't let him see it, as Screwtape admits the church really is. The church is really spread out through time and space, rooted in history like a strong army with banners. Screwtape's afraid of that church. He wants this man, though, to see the church only as he might first perceive it. He needs to see this just as people he's trying to avoid, people he doesn't understand, people that he actually knows are still sinners. The point there is to keep him from truly knowing and loving these people, from being loved by them, to keep him from knowing how much he needs them. And ultimately, that will weaken or even destroy the young man's faith as it pushes him 
from the Christian fellowship that he needs, the worship and even God and his love. I think something like this is what's on Peter's mind when he's telling us that we need to love each other. We don't love each other simply because it's the nice thing to do. We love each other because we need each other. We need each other's faith for our relationship with God to help each other in these things. And actually, God has brought us together intentionally. So to deny each other is to deny him and actually cause ourselves real harm. But when we think about these sins that Peter has listed here, they can be really challenging for us because they're very, especially internal sins. Yes, they have outward effects, but they're often takes a time for us to notice those effects. It often takes quite a bit of time for those effects to feel big enough for someone else to notice and help us with. But these sins start inside. They fester inside. They grow deep in long before we might understand they're there. Um, So I think my prayer as we think about this is just let's go before the Lord. Let's ask for his help to expose, to open our eyes to ways that we might be entertaining any of these sins against others. As Peter closes here, um, we might expect that he would counter that list of sins with a list of like virtues and righteous actions that we should emulate. But instead, Peter just points us to our absolute dependency on God. We can't love like we're supposed to. We can't be holy as he is holy or properly reverence God without God's help. And so, like newborn infants, we must long for pure spiritual milk that only God can give. It's actually a command here. It's a command, we're commanded to crave that milk. And thankfully, Peter doesn't mean real milk. I can't digest real milk well. It's a very good thing. He's speaking figuratively here. He's saying that we need the gospel and the word of God. That's this spiritual milk he wants to point us to. Crave the gospel. Long for God's word. Because it's through these that we will grow up into our salvation. Oftentimes, already in the book and throughout Peter, we see that his focus is on the future of our salvation, what will finally be revealed with the coming Christ. But that's not here. Right here, his point is that even now we can grow up into our salvation. Even now, we can be more like God. We can imitate him in holiness. We can love like he loves. We can grow in these things more and more as our lives are guided and strengthened through the gift of God's word and the gospel, the grace of his gospel. So let's pray. Christ, we thank you for, again, your word, your great gospel. And we ask that you um, draw us always to them. Help us to crave your gospel, the truth, your grace for us. Help us to see you at work in our lives um, and hold on with that great love and show us what it is to be holy and what we're doing as you are at work, as you're growing in us. Um, that we can display you to each other and to the world. Amen.